0: Once upon a time in Vienna, pregnant women begged on hands and knees not to have their babies delivered by doctors in the hospital. They would rather have their babies in the street rather than the hospital because there was a good chance they wouldn't leave the hospital alive. One man figured out why, but no one listened, at the cost of hundreds or even thousands of lives. Today we have the story of Ignaz Semmelweis on the 152nd episode of Sunday Morning Coffee with Jeff.
1: With Jeff Coffee Coffee with Jeff Coffee With Jeff Coffee Coffee with Jeff
0: Good morning! It's Sunday, time for coffee, and I am Jeff Kelly, your host and storyteller. It is so nice spending our Sunday mornings together, having a cup of coffee, and talking like old friends. Coffee. You know, our talk doesn't have to be a one-way conversation. I still use email. Yeah, I'm old-fashioned. And you can email me anytime you'd like at coffeewithjeff at gmail.com. It's coffeewithjeff, all one word, little at sign, gmail.com. I'm always interested in hearing about your thoughts on the stories that I tell. Feel free to email me. So today's story is an interesting one. I came across it while watching the amazing Netflix show, Bill Nye Saves the World. There's a part in the show called Bad Scientists, which features people in history that were treated in a way that, well, they deserve to be angry. One of these was about Mary Anning, the fossil hunter from the early 19th century. I told her story way back on episode 80. Then he did one on Ignaz Semmelweis, and I thought... That's the perfect subject for a Coffee with Jeff episode. And the more I looked into it, the more I thought, it's almost unbelievable. I mean, how could doctors think that? uh... Well, we'll get into that in just a minute. But part of the story is about how people refuse to change, even if there's a good reason to do so. And I was reminded of when I was a young man in grade school, and believe me, that was a long time ago. We were told over and over that the metric system was coming. We had to learn it because soon we would all be using it. We would be forced to use things like centimeters and kilograms. And it made sense because it used base 10 to measure. But Americans hate change. And we never switched. Of course, now, slowly we are switching due to science, computers, and the drug industry. It's happening whether people like it or not. Change, if it's for the good, will happen. Unfortunately, a lot of times it takes time, which sucks when taking that time causes the loss of many, many lives, like in today's story. And as you will find out in today's story, it was a simple change, yet, well, anyway, let's get to it, all right? Here's the story of a doctor who paid a heavy price for realizing the truth.
1: This podcast is part of the PsyCon Network. You can support this podcast and others like it by becoming a subscriber at patreon.com forward slash PsyCon. That's C-S-I-C-O-N. A link can be found on the Coffee with Jeff website. Just a dollar or two is all it takes to keep these podcasts going. Thank you for your support. You know what crazy is? Crazy is majority rules. Yeah, uh take germs for example in the 18th century no such thing not a, nothing no one would ever imagined such a thing no same person anyway ah, ah. along comes this doctor ah 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 summer weiss summer weiss summer weiss comes along he's trying to convince people well other doctors mainly that there's these teeny tiny invisible bad things called germs that get into your body and make you sick huh He's trying to get doctors to wash their hands. What is
0: this guy? Crazy? Teeny tiny invisible
1: what do you call uh, uh
0: germs? Huh? What? How could doctors have known? The year was eighteen forty seven and microorganisms, bacteria, fungi, viruses, and such were unheard of. If your body looked clean, it must be so. Why should doctors worry about washing their hands or sterilizing their medical tools? even if they were going to operate. That's the way things were all over the world, including the Vienna General Hospital, a teaching hospital in Austria. But the Vienna Hospital was a little different, for it had two maternity wards. And it was the difference between those two wards that clued in a young doctor to realize, well, something amazing. His name was Ignaz Semmelweis. You see, the hospital had a maternity wing that was divided up into two wards. One was run by full-time midwives, and the other by doctors. Now, in the 21st century, I think it's safe to say that most people would prefer to have their babies delivered by doctors, but not in the 19th century in Vienna. In fact, most women would rather give birth anywhere, including the street, than in the doctor's ward in the Vienna General Hospital. Some say the doctor's ward had a death rate that could be as high as five times higher than that of the midwives. And you'd think that this would be an area of concern for the doctors, but as far as I can tell, they didn't seem concerned. It's just how things were. That was until the hero of today's story, Dr. Ignaz Semmelweis, began looking into it. He would end up coming up with a revolutionary new theory... That doctors should wash their hands. He was born on the 1st of July, 1818, in Buda, Hungary, an area that today is part of Budapest. He was the fifth child out of ten to Marisa Muller and Joseph Semmelweis, Hungarian immigrants from Germany. His father was a prosperous grocer who was able to afford an education for his children. Biographers usually describe the young Ignaz as bright, well adjusted, energetic, warm of heart, imaginative, and physically strong. Sir William Sinclair's 1909 biography of Semmelweis described him as a clever boy with a ready tongue, full of energy, warmth of heart, and imaginative. In 1937, after his primary education, in which he excelled, he began to study law at the University of Vienna. Only a few weeks into schooling, he began to think he had made a mistake. Law was boring. And then one night, as the story goes, friends of his that were in medical school took him to a local morgue to see a demonstration of a corpse. And from that moment on, he devoted himself to medicine. He was awarded a doctorate degree in medicine in 1844. Later, after failing to obtain an appointment in a clinic for internal medicine, Samuel Weiss decided to specialize in obstetrics. By 1846, Samuel Weiss was the assistant to Professor Johann Klein at the first obstetrical clinic of the Vienna General Hospital. His duties were to examine patients each morning in preparation for the professor's rounds, supervise difficult deliveries, teach students, and to be a clerk of records. Maternity wards, such as the one at the Vienna General Hospital, were set up all over Europe to help pregnancies of underprivileged women, many of them prostitutes. The idea was to offer these poor women a comfortable and safe place to give birth, providing them with free food, warmth, and shelter. It was a free service, but there was a trade-off. It would be used for the training of midwives and doctors. At the Vieta Hospital, there were two maternity clinics, one run by midwives and the other young doctors. At this time, there was a deadly problem with giving birth, something that was commonly known as childbed fever, known today as preparal fever, Or postpartum infection. It would begin after the first 24 hours and within the first 10 days after childbirth or miscarriage. It would begin with a fever of about 38 degrees Celsius or 104 degrees Fahrenheit. Then there were chills, lower abdominal pain, multiple abscesses, and possibly bad smelling vaginal discharge. One can only imagine the horrible feeling when the fever first hit a young mother who had just given birth, to know that she has been given almost a certain death sentence and she will not live to raise her baby. Seeing this really affected the sensitive Ignaz Semmelweis, with an estimated 5-20% to of the women giving birth ending up in the morgue. In 1879, a French pediatrician and gynecologist Jacques Herveau noted, Epidemic puerperal fever is to women what war is to men. Like war, it cuts down the healthiest, bravest, and most essential part of the population. Like war, its victims are in the prime of their lives. Charles Meigs, a professor of obstetrics and disease of women at the Jefferson College in Philadelphia, warned his students in 1848, There is a word of fear that I shall pronounce when I utter the name of paperal fever, for there is almost no acute illness that is more terrible than this. No, not even smallpox. There is something unbearable in this tormented death of a woman who has recently given birth to her child. It's sort of a desecration, and the suffering is indescribable. At the Vienna General Hospital, of the two wards, Semmelweis noticed something peculiar. The one run by doctors had around a 10% death rate due to the fever, while the one run by midwives had about a 4% death rate. Some say the death rate was worse than that for the doctor's side, sometimes being up to five times higher than that of the midwives. And this wasn't a secret. It was well known on the streets of Vienna. It was so bad that desperate women often begged on their knees not to be admitted to the doctor's clinic. Some women even preferred giving birth on the street, pretending to have given sudden birth en route to the hospital, a practice known as street births, which meant that they still qualified for the child care benefits without having been admitted to the clinic. Sammelweis was determined to figure out why this was. He began looking at the differences between both wards, trying to take a scientific approach. Was there something one side did that the other side didn't do that was the cause? Taking one difference at a time, Sammelweis would change things to see if it helped with the outcome. Like he noticed that doctors used a different position of the women during birth than the midwives, so he changed that, but the death rate failed to change. He looked at the way they ate, but that wasn't it. It wasn't overcrowding because both wards were equally full and the climate was the same for both. He spent day after day down at the morgue examining the dead mothers trying to figure this out. The death of these women and his failure to find a cause confused and depressed the young doctor. Then came a clue to what was going on with the death of Semmelweis' friend, Jacob Kolechka, a professor of forensic medicine at the hospital. Kolechka was conducting an autopsy in the company of students when his finger was accidentally cut by one of the students with the same knife that was being used in the autopsy. Days later, Kolechka ended up dying in very much the same way the women in the maternity wards did. Samovice wrote, Day and night I was haunted by the images of Kolechka's disease and was forced to recognize, even more decisively, that the disease from which Kolechka died was identical to that from which so many maternity patients died. Was there something in the corpses of the dead that caused the fever, he began to wonder? Germ theory was something new, but not something that had been accepted yet in Vienna or most of Europe. For most of the medical community, it was still thought the disease was caused by miasma, which is basically bad air. Now there's one thing that I failed to mention. That was that the doctors went straight from digging around inside the corpses down in the morgue helping women give birth in the maternity ward without washing their hands and since this was a teaching hospital many doctors would examine each woman during their stay none of them bothering to wash after all they figured how could a little dirt under the fingernails hurt anybody even if you were reaching into their bodies this would explain things wouldn't it the midwives had no such contact with cadavers. Semmelweis concluded that he and his medical students carried cadaverous particles on their hands from the autopsy room to the patients they were examining in the clinic. Without understanding exactly what was going on, Samuel Weiss realized that cleanliness was the key, and he started a new policy at the hospital that doctors should wash their hands, especially after an autopsy with a solution of chlorinated lime. He did this because he knew the chlorinated solution worked best to remove the putrid smell of the infected autopsy tissue, and he hoped it would destroy whatever the doctors were transmitting to the women. He was very lucky. We know today that chlorine kills germs, but he didn't know that. Now, without the approval from his superiors, he began posting notices for all doctors to wash their hands, and the doctors were immediately offended. Samuel Weiss began staying at the hospital day and night to keep a watch on the doctors. The mortality rate of the doctor's clinic dropped by 90% and was comparable to that of the midwives. The mortality rate in April 1847 was 18.3%. After the hand-washing policy in mid-May, the rates in June were 2.2%, July 1.2%, August 1.9%, and most amazingly, the death rate was zero in the two months in the year following the discovery. Samuel Weiss was saving dozens maybe hundreds of women's lives what he didn't know then was the women had been dying of septicemia or blood poisoning which is microorganisms or toxins in the blood now you would think that Samuel Weiss would be treated like a hero but that wasn't the case his findings were in direct conflict with the current established scientific and medical opinions of the time This was a day and age when most still believed in the four humors, and that sickness was caused by an imbalance of those humors. The solution for the imbalance was bloodletting. Yes, if you were sick, the thought was that draining your blood was the cure. Of course, they had microscopes that could see little moving objects on slides, but they were thought to be harmless. Even with the obvious success of hand-washing, Between morning autopsies and afternoon birthings, many still rejected his theory, laughing at his ideas. You know, people in the 1850s are no different from those of today. People hate change. Some doctors were offended that they would have to wash their hands, feeling that their social status as gentlemen was inconsistent with the idea that their hands could be unclean. The medical community rejected Samuel Weiss's ideas, and the more he persisted, the more irritated his colleagues became. And part of this rejection might have been Samuel Weiss's fault. The first was, he couldn't explain what was going on. If someone asked, why does washing your hands help? His only response could be, because it does. And he was a poor communicator, becoming angry when he was questioned. He never gave lectures, wrote papers with data explaining his findings, all the things that were necessary at the time. And if you think about it, he was basically telling doctors it was their fault these women were dying, that they were the killers. He would send nasty, angry letters to the administrators of the hospital. Eventually, the doctors and administrators at the hospital became sick and tired of Samuel Weiss, so on March 20, 1849, when his contract with the hospital came to an end, it was not renewed. He left in disgrace, and due to the harassment of the medical community in Vienna, he was forced to move to Budapest. And now the doctors were free not to wash their hands anymore, so they stopped and the death rate went back up. That's how much people resist change, to the point of watching young mothers die rather than changing their ways. Of course, most of these women were poor and from the street. Was that part of it? One wonders if these doctors would have washed their hands if it was their wife or daughter. About two years after leaving the hospital in Vienna, Weiss began working at the small St. Ruckus Hospital in Budapest. When he took the job, one out of three women died at the hospital of childbed fever. He began a serious cleanliness policy. Everything had to be washed, the bed, instruments, floors, walls, and especially hands, which was required between patients. During his six years at the hospital, he virtually eliminated the disease. During 1851 to 1855, only 8 patients died of childbed fever out of 933. The death rate went from about 30% to less than 1%. Back in Vienna, hundreds of women were dying every year now that this policy was not required. Unfortunately, a combination of his very direct, almost dictatorship-like attitude, which didn't make him any friends, and again a disbelief that his cleanliness was the reason that women were surviving childbirth, caused him to lose his job. For Ignaz Semmelweis, it had to be hugely frustrating. He knew how to save lives, but couldn't explain it in a way that doctors or anybody would understand. When he tried, no one would listen to him. His frustration and anger began to drive him crazy. He spent time at the church praying to God and writing heated letters to doctors, accusing them of being murderers. When he would attempt to give lectures, he would often break down crying. He was known to stop young couples in the street and beg them if they were ever to have children, make sure their doctors washed their hands before delivering. His young wife began to worry about his condition. Was he truly going mad, or was the knowledge that he knew how to save lives but was helpless to do so just too much for the sensitive doctor to deal with? And then at this time, Samuel Weiss did something he had been avoiding for years, and that was to write a book. Published in 1861, it was called The Ideology, Concept, and Pophylaxis of Childbed Fever. The first half of the book, while rambling a bit, contained everything doctors should know about preventing the fever, but the second half was more or less a vicious, angry attack on those who wouldn't listen to him, saying things like, I declare before God and the world that you are a murderer. The book was poorly received, and his depression got worse. For those that gave his book bad reviews, Sam Weiss began lashing out with open letters that were full of bitterness, desperation, and fury, again accusing everybody involved in being irresponsible killers. He started to drink heavy and sleep with prostitutes, spending large amounts of time away from his family. His wife noticed a change in his sexual behavior. In 1865, his public behavior became irritating and embarrassing to all his associates. It's been debated whether something was really wrong with Samuel Weiss, or it was just depression and anger that caused his erratic behavior. According to C. Connell Carter, in his biography of Samuel Weiss, the exact nature of his affliction cannot be determined. It may have been Alzheimer's disease, he wrote, a type of dementia which is associated with rapid cognitive decline and mood changes. It may have been third-stage syphilis, a then-common disease of obstetricians who examine thousands of women at gratis institutions, or it may have been emotional exhaustion from overwork and stress. His wife became so concerned that she reluctantly teamed up with his doctors to deal with the situation. She took Samuel Weiss to Austria on a vacation, In Vienna, she suggested they visit a friend's hospital, a mental institution. There, men were waiting. Sammelweis surmised what was happening and tried to leave. They grabbed him and dragged him off to a padded cell and put him into a straitjacket. I can only imagine him screaming as they dragged him away. They don't have to die! I know how to save these women! Why won't anybody listen to me? Ignaz Sammelweis would be dead 14 days later. No one is sure what exactly happened to him, but somehow he suffered a wound on his head or finger. Some say he was beaten by guards while trying to escape, or it may have been an accident while in treatment, or maybe just a fall. No one's sure. But the wound became infected, and on August 13, 1865, he died at the age of 47. Ironically, of the same thing that he had spent his life trying to prevent, sepsemia or blood poisoning. And for one more ironic twist, at the time of his death, Louis Pasteur was doing amazing work on microorganisms, pretty much figuring out the piece of the puzzle that Samuel Weiss couldn't explain. And then Joseph Lister, a British surgeon and pioneer of antiseptic surgery, would put it all together, making sterilization a required part of surgery. If Samuel Weiss had lived just a few years more, he would have seen everything he preached confirmed. Of course, it would take 12 years after Joseph Lister began preaching cleanliness before doctors all over Europe began taking it seriously and realized the importance of washing their hands. Dr. Semmelweis, interesting document, this. Your creativity is inspiring, but I'm afraid that I must turn a deaf ear to your speculations. You have a fanciful imagination, doctor. Petition the Lord with prayer if you must, but remember that childbed fever is the price that he has put on the great gift of bearing a child. Good day. Has
1: anybody got a match? Thanks. Now I can light an old goal and listen to the sad sack.
0: A little bit before I go. It wasn't long after his death that his work began to be appreciated. In 1904, a statue was erected of Samuel Weiss outside the hospital in Budapest where he was once fired. A school for medicine in Budapest, Hungary, is named the Samuel Weiss University. In 2008, Samuel Weiss was selected as the motif for an Austrian commemorative coin, and there's a minor planet named after him. There is also a metaphor for a certain type of human behavior characterized by the reflex-like rejection of new knowledge because it contradicts entrenched norms, beliefs, or paradigms. It's called the Sammelweis reflex. Anyway, how about the ending credits? You know, I listen to a lot of podcasts, and many of them, ones that I enjoy, pause in the middle of an exciting story for an advertisement. Sometimes these have three or four-minute breaks in the action to try to sell me a bed or a book or something. You notice these aren't on the PsyCon podcasts? You catch that? Look, help us keep our shows free of advertising. Just go to PsyCon.fm, that's C-S-I-C-O-N.fm, and look for the Patreon link in the top. And a sincere thank you to all of you who already support the show. Speaking of PsyCon, why not go over to our website and check out a few of our other shows? The wonderful Who's Who podcast, which just recently finished up going over all the classic Doctor Who episodes, is now going through all the classic Patrick McGuhan Prisoner shows. The Prisoner was always one of my favorites. You can find this and other Psychon shows over at Psychon.fm. You know, you can email me at coffeewithjeff at gmail.com for any reason. You can follow me on Twitter. My name on Twitter is coffeewithjeff, all one word. And I have a Coffee with Jeff Facebook page that I would be thrilled if you would join. Your story ideas are always welcome, and you can use any of these places to help me out with suggestions. If you want to support the show but you don't have the coin to help financially, go over to iTunes and leave a review or a few stars. Those really help the show. And remember, all the links that I use to write today's story can be found at PsyCon's Coffee with Jeff page for this episode. I'd like to thank Brecky Tomlinson for having this podcast on the PsyCon Network. To my wife of 34 years for being my wife of 34 years. David Metzger for designing the Coffee with Jeff logo, Kelly Rickard for writing and performing the Coffee with Jeff theme, and to all of you who listen to the show every week, thank you so much. And a special shout-out to all those that repost us on Facebook and Twitter. You have a special place in my heart. I'll be back in two weeks with another thrilling story.
1: Coffee with Jeff I once knew a man who Used to drink his coffee black He once tried it with some cream Didn't like it, now he never looks back Coffee with Jeff Coffee Coffee with Jeff Coffee with Jeff More coffee with Jeff Years go by and life's filled with change Sometimes your plans get rearranged He's seen it all and he's weathered it too So Jeff wants to have some coffee with you Coffee, coffee with Jeff Coffee More coffee with Jeff Coffee with Jeff